Hi everyone, hope you've been enjoying your summer even though it's definitely been uh, a weird one and a non-typical last few months. Um, we're excited that this morning we get to embark on a new uh, teaching series with Steve and we're excited to see what the Lord shows us over the next couple of weeks. And so we pray and hope that uh, this time this morning and over the next couple of weeks will be an encouraging time for you and an uplifting time and that you will be drawn close to our great God and Savior. morning, Cresswick. I, Psalm 91, 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies uh, proclaim the work of his hands. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that we can see around us your glory and your majesty. Our purpose today, Father, is to glorify you. We would ask that you would enable us to do that by the Spirit of God. Ask, Father, that you would guide our hearts and our minds 
as we look at your word today. This is our prayer. In the strong name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we have completed our series in the book of Hebrews, and I am going to be uh, recording messages, Lord willing, for the next seven weeks uh, here at the church. And so it's the hardest thing for me actually was finishing Hebrews and then trying to determine what would I actually speak on, uh, what would I preach or teach about uh, over this next number of weeks as we finish the summer and also as I finish my time here at Crestwick. And uh, staff can testify to the fact that I, I, I worked hard uh, to try to come up with an idea that was going to be workable. I thought about different books of the Bible. I thought about different sections. I thought about different topics. And what we finally decided uh, is that I am going to work, on, work through Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. You may recall at the beginning of this COVID crisis, uh, the first couple Sunday mornings, I spoke on Revelation 4 and 5. Now we're going to Revelation 1, 2, and 3. I think that it will be relevant. And uh, then if you want 4 and 5, you can go back to the very beginning of the archives and watch uh, those uh, messages as well. Now, Revelation is a book that is fascinating. You know as well as I do how much it engenders uh, some amounts of light, but also regrettably, uh, in a lot of our church circles, Revelation has been a book which has caused a division. And it's not because of the book itself, it's because of the attitude of people who are interpreting the book. I would defend uh, certain readings of certain passages at great length. I would yield very quickly uh, on other passages which are disputed. Uh, I, I don't think that we can be dogmatic about every little detail. In fact, I think that one of the problems that has bedeviled the reading of Revelation and how we've approached it as churches is, for one, um, exegetical and theological and historical ignorance has been a massive problem. That is, people just don't realize that this book has been interpreted by godly people in a variety of different ways throughout church history. But also, a great problem is in that people have... Uh, they've lost the forest for the trees and they've missed the major message because they've been so worried about every little detail. So I think a, a very sane and sensible reading of the book says you read a section, you can figure out roughly the major principle, and then you can go back and try to understand some of the smaller details as you go. Uh, but if you start with trying to understand every little detail without that sort of broader focus, I think you're going to get lost and you'll end up with, with certain things that are relatively implausible. So there's lots, lots more I'd love to say about Revelation in terms of its genre, in terms of the different major ways that it's been interpreted throughout history, uh, but we, we don't have time. So this morning, I want us to look at Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 8. So Revelation 1, 1 through 8. This is the word of God. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this is actually a, a, a very, very rich section. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about these various verses. So what I want to do is just uh, recognizing we're going to be leaving a lot of good things unsaid. I'd like to just sort of just walk through this text together. And I think that we'll be able to see, again, that uh, Revelation is a book that is understandable. It, its main point can be grasped. Its main teachings can be understood. This, this book was not given to divide the church, to get people puffed up with pride, uh, to cause quarrels and division, and it wasn't given to the church to be an absolute mystery. In fact, the word revelation, the very first verse, the revelation from Jesus Christ. The word means an unveiling, or as you, obviously revelation refers to revealing. A revelation is when something is revealed. So this is not a covering up. Uh, this is not a hiding away. This is not a confusion. This is a revelation. It is an unveiling. And so what God is doing is he's actually in this book helping you to understand who he is, what he's doing, who his son is, what Christ has accomplished, and what Christ will accomplish also for us in the future. So this is, again, a book where we might not understand every detail. I mean, honestly, I don't understand every detail in any Bible book. Uh, every, literally without exception, every book of the Bible. Uh, contains verses where I'm not completely sure what's being said. Uh, every single book in the Bible contains passages that I'm not completely sure I, I well, I, I am actually, I am completely sure I don't fully understand. And so there always are things that you, you don't, you don't fully get. So we're not going to say that Revelation is a book that, you know, we can understand everything in it without exception. No Bible book is a book I understand perfectly. So there are things that are difficult here. There are. But on basis, it is something which is to make clear to us. It is revelation from God. The Bible is given for our edification. It's given for our instruction. It's given for us to grow in knowledge and practice. And so this book from God is to help us understand 
who he is. It's supposed to clarify rather than to confuse. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, but that's a subjective genitive, so it's actually from Jesus Christ. And it's the revelation that uh, isn't just about him, it's from him. Okay, So it belongs to Jesus, and he's the one who gives it. He shows his servant what must soon take place. So you notice the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So God entrusts this to Jesus, and as we'll see throughout uh, the book, God entrusts it to Jesus. Jesus has an angel sometimes who mediates the vision to John, but it comes through God to Christ, sometimes through an angel to John, for the people of God. But is this book, ultimately, as much as it's passed along, it's for the church. It's for the people of God all through time. Now, God gave this revelation to Jesus to show his servants, to show believers, what must soon take place. Now, this is where you uh, can almost immediately get embroiled in a bit of interpretive controversy. What does it mean that this must soon take place? See, you have to understand that actually throughout history, a lot of people have believed that the book of Revelation has roughly been mainly fulfilled. What was soon for John is past to us. And this is one of the things actually about biblical prophecy, which, which I don't understand why people can't understand this principle. A prophecy in the Bible can be future from the people who it was given to, and in the past to us. That is, there are all kinds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Think uh, not least about the Christmas narratives. Uh, that, that the Messiah would be born. Think about all of those uh, prophecies that we talk about at Christmas time. They were future from the prophets, and they were fulfilled in the past from us. So the fact that the Bible contains a prophecy about what's going to take place doesn't mean that it has to take place after our lifetime or during our lifetime. It means that it had to take place after the lifetime of the prophet. And so a lot of people believe that, that mainly a lot of revelation has already been fulfilled. A lot of people, of course, believe that almost none of it's been fulfilled, and it's almost all to be fulfilled in the future. A lot of people, in my judgment, take the saner view that it's a bit of both, that there's a lot in Revelation that has already taken place, and there is more yet that will take place in the future times. Now, others, of course, actually believe that the book is just a symbolic representation of timeless principles, and it's not about chronology at all. It's really just about, again and again and again, the triumph of God and the Lamb. Evil will always resist what's good. Darkness will fight against what's light. The devil will rage. The world will resist the gospel. The world will persecute believers. But in the end, the Lamb and his people will triumph. Some people believe that that's, this, really, this whole book is really a, a, a collection of symbols to teach those timeless principles. Now, I don't, I don't fully agree with that. Uh, although you can't read the book without seeing that those timeless principles are there, even if they're set in chronological sequence, eschatologically. Now, there's a lot more to be said. But these things must soon take place. One of the things that does help with a future reading of the book in terms of fulfillment is that for the prophets, soon is a very relative term. 
sometimes they practice what's called telescoping, where they will focus on a distant event, but it's like that distant event is brought forward into their vision. And so it stands in the immediate horizon to them. Or they're looking more in terms of the plan of God. What may seem like a long time to us is not a long time to God. In terms of his calendar, these things must soon take place, even though in a human perspective of time, it seems like it's quite a distance uh, sort of into the future. But anyway, God shows, gives this revelation to Jesus to give to his servants to show them what must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So God gives this to Jesus. Jesus sends the angel to John. And he is the one who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea of testimony is very, very important. Testimony and witness are major themes in Revelation. And the word for witness is simply the word that we get, uh, that you're familiar with in terms of the word martyr. In the first century, a martyr was simply a witness. So yes, well, how is it then that, that to be a martyr, now, I mean, today, martyr has this really uh, poor connotation. You know, you always want to say to people, you know, stop being a martyr. You know, it means that people have this, cultivated this persecution complex. In my judgment, there's been a fair amount of that in some Christian circles during this COVID epidemic. Oh, you know, we're just, we're just being martyred. We're such martyrs for our faith. Well, the reality is, with that negative connotation removed, Martyrs, the, word, the reason that the, we use the word martyr for those who have lost their lives for their faith is because they're, during times of intense persecution, to be a faithful witness meant you would die. And so there's a shift linguistically where martyr shades from just being a witness to being someone who dies for their witness because it was so common. So here, John is the one who witnesses, he testifies, and it's the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, because of that, because this is the word of God, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. It, it's singular, not plural. So it's the one who reads, and the NIV uh, supplies, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Older translations may just say, you know, blessed, blessed is the one who, or blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy. And you might then think that that just sort of attends to you in your quiet devotional life. But rather, this is referring to the one who, in the synagogue or in the assembly, re recognizing that they didn't have multiple copies of, of any book whatsoever. In fact, this letter of Revelation would have, would have come to them. There's a lot of people who are illiterate. There's no copies available. And so to stand up in the assembly and to read from this letter meant that you accepted this letter to be on par with Scripture that you accept this as the word of God. 
And so there's a blessing, there, there's a beatitude pronounced upon the one who recognizes this as scripture, who stands up in the assembly to read it publicly. There's a reward promised. And not only are you blessed if you read the words of this prophecy in the assembly, but blessed are also those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So the one who reads is singular grammatically, those who hear is plural grammatically. So the idea isn't people doing their quiet devotions, although of course there's devotional benefit from reading Revelation, but the thrust of this verse is accepted as scripture, blessed is the one who stands up and reads it, blessed are all of those who hear it and also take it to heart because the time is near. Now the word for time is kairos, not Kronos, and there have been various linguistic arguments that say, you know, Kronos, chronology, is just time in its normal unfolding sequence. Kairos deals with critical moments, um, sort of eschatological importance. That could be the case here. So the idea here would be the time, not just the clock is ticking, but the big climactic moment is approaching. God is about to do something big, and so pay attention to his revelation. It comes from him through Jesus, through the angel, through the apostle, to you, through the reader of scripture, to you. And so take it to heart. This is important. John. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. All of Revelation is fascinating because it's cast here after this prologue in verses 1 through 3, the whole book is cast as an epistle. That is, it's written to the seven churches, like a letter. But it's also, there's a lot of prophecy, so it's sort of prophetic in terms of genre. It's apocalyptic in terms of genre. It's an epistle in terms of genre. So you have to kind of keep track again of exactly what's going on here uh, in this book as you're reading it. Now, it's sent to the seven churches in the province of Asia, but it's just as much for us. Uh, we'll, we'll notice this again, probably, when we get to chapters 2 and 3, which are uh, specific instructions for particular churches. The idea is, of course, that when God sends a message to one church in an inspired way, that message is for all of his people in all the churches throughout history. So the letter sent to uh, the church in Corinth, for example, is as much for us through all time as it was for them, the original recipients. The same is true of Revelation. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know that uh, grace is that uh, unmerited, undeserved divine favor. In fact, a great favor and blessing in spite of our sin and our demerit. And God gives us this grace and peace flows from this grace. Uh, peace is that state of harmony, that full well-being. We have uh, peace with God. There's a peace that comes from God where, where everything is right, everything is balanced, everything is as it ought to be. Grace and peace to you. From who? Who does this come 
through and from. It's from him who is and who was and who is to come. So this is a paraphrase of the divine name revealed at the burning bush. I am who I am. God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. This is the name that's celebrated by the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4. When they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. A lot of these themes in this first chapter, a lot of these, these texts get picked up and developed throughout the book. Here, this divine name is to remind you that God is transcendent. God is independent. He has existence from his self or aseity. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He needs nothing. But not only that, he is the covenant God. He is faithful in a covenant relationship way. There is nothing before him. There is nothing after him. He is everything. Grace and peace comes from him, but also from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, there's a bit of an enigma here, um, but likely, in, in my judgment, you get this also in Revelation 5, the seven spirits of God before the throne, probably it seems to me, and I might be wrong, but it seems to me that the best way of understanding this is as the Holy Spirit. Seven as a number of completion and perfection. So, the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits, I think it's the spirit in all of his completion and fullness and perfection. And from Jesus Christ. Another reason I think to possibly favor interpreting the seven spirits as a reference to the Holy Spirit is then the grace and peace comes to you in a Trinitarian way. It comes to you from Father, Spirit, and Son. Uh, it's a little bit harder, to, I think, for grace and peace to come through the angelic beings or, or whatever. So, Trinitarian emphasis. Grace and peace to you from Father, Spirit, Son, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the seven spirits of God, and to through Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. That is, he is the faithful martyr. He is the one who has died for the testimony of God and for the testimony about himself, actually. Faithful unto death for his witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He conquers death itself. He's raised to life. He is the one who reigns, who is supreme and preeminent over death, defeating death itself. The firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John, of course, is on Patmos. And he is persecuted. The church has been persecuted by you know, Caesar, by Rome, by the superpower of the day. But Jesus Christ rules over the kings of the earth. Later on in Revelation, of course, he's revealed as the king of kings and lord of lords. It is superlatively, he is the king of kings. No king could be higher. But literally, he is the king of kings. He rules and reigns over all earthly kings. Firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. He, is, he conquers death and rules and reigns over all because he was the faithful witness. Because he did not shrink from atoning death and persecution. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, 
To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, amazingly here, the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ, is revealed through his shed blood. If you want to know how much Jesus loves you, look at him dying in your place, dying for you, redeeming you from your sins and wrongdoing. The, the blood of Christ, his willing, voluntarily, voluntarily chosen sacrificial death in your place reveals just how much he loves you. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, the word freed, some versions, some people might just say that you know, it's better as washed. Um, the best manuscript evidence is that the word is freed. Uh, but you have to understand in, in Greek, the word for freed and the word for washed, uh, they're the same word except for a one letter difference. And they're actually pronounced the exact same way. So if you hear the word orally, uh, you can't tell. And context is what determines you know, whether it is um, freed or washed. And actually, weather would be a perfect example of that. Um, context determines you know, whether the word weather is referring to uh, weather or weather, you understand. Uh, and so the same thing is true here. If you're copying down in the scriptoriums, as they're copying down manuscripts, sometimes some person, a person would read. And if one person is reading the text and 10 people are copying it down, then that's the way to mass produce manuscripts in the ancient world. And so it's very easy to, to make that kind of error. Either way, whether it's freed or washed, although to be freed, it's his blood is the ransom price that buys or purchases our liberty. The reality is it's the love of Christ that drives his sacrificial blood, which then takes care of our sins. But not only has he redeemed us and taken care of our sins and purified us, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Kingdom is royal. Priest is mediation and access to God and service. You know, in Israel, of course, these, these were divided. The Levites, tribe of Levi, had the priests. Tribe of Judah had the king. Here in the church, because Jesus Christ is a king and a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, king and priest, come together and funnels down to the church. Believers are kings and priests as well because we are united with Jesus. And we have this not for our own privilege, but to serve God. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so you, you again, ascribe doxology. The Lamb of God and, and God himself will be praised numerous times throughout the book, ascribe glory and power forever and ever, and that begins at the very start. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. He is coming with the clouds. You know, this picks up that Daniel imagery. Jesus often refers to how he will appear with the clouds, and he will come with the clouds. It's a reference not to sort of the environment and the atmosphere. Um, it's a reference to the glory of God. The pillar of God's glory that leads the children of Israel. It, the, the, the glory of God that descends on Sinai. The cloud of God's glory that fills the tabernacle. The, the glory cloud that God speaks from to identify his son. Uh, the glory cloud of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus uh, ascending and disappearing into the clouds. It's all references to the glory of God. 
And so the Son will return with glory, and every eye will see him. Uh, the Bible makes very clear, the New Testament makes very clear, when Jesus Christ returns, it is a public spectacle. It's not a secret thing that happens. Uh, the verses that talk about the return of Christ say, you know, as, as lightning in the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Every eye will see him. You know, there, there's, with, with, he will come with the, the trumpet call of God, the shout of, allow, uh, uh, of the archangel. The return of Jesus Christ is the most public spectacle in the history of the world when he comes back. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn. They'll mourn because they realize they crucified and rejected the King of Glory. They rejected God. They rejected the one who loves so much he shed his blood to provide atonement for sin. They rejected and rebelled against the one who is in sovereign control over the universe. All peoples on earth will mourn because of him. This is the way it will be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the, the first and the last. Um, it's a textual insertion, we know, but he is the beginning and the end. You, you don't have anything before him. You won't have anything after him. But it's also an inclusio. That is, he's the beginning and the end, uh, but it's not just like you care about him or he's important at the, at the start and at the finish. It's everything in between. He's absolutely supreme and necessary. The one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is not just you know, a, a, an abstract doctrine. God reveals himself this way to give you comfort and encouragement and strength. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget that I am eternal. Don't forget that I am sovereign. Don't forget that I rule over everything now. I always have and I always will. This is the God who is covenantly faithful through whom grace and peace comes. And you know uh, that not as much as I've been recording uh, these messages, but when here at church services, I'm often, well, every time actually, I'll finish preaching, we'll, we'll sing some songs to praise God, and then I'll pray and I will say, go in grace and peace. Well, where does that grace and peace come from? Well, it comes from the Father, Spirit, and Son in this order. We, we're more from the thing Father, Son, and Spirit in terms of Trinitarian theology, but the order here is Father, Spirit, Son. Just for this text. Other texts have the Father, Son, Spirit order. This epistle, just like the epistles of Paul, doesn't end with grace and peace. It begins with it. Grace and peace to use a, you know, to take to take a verse slightly out of context, grace and peace is like the alpha and omega of our experience with God, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. So John starts this way, and that's that's how I will finish. Not just saying go in grace and peace, but reminding you of of where that grace and peace comes from. So go and and, and stay and remain and live in the grace and peace that is not from me or from any pastor or from any person. The grace and peace that is for you comes from him who was and who is and who is to come, 
and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Grace and peace to you from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Stand me.